He's the founder and chairman of the world's leading brand and cultural transformation group, operating across five continents and in more than 30 countries. For three years running, Thinkers50, the world's premier ranking resource of business icons, has selected him to be among the world's top 50 business thinkers. He's the author of seven New York Times bestselling books, translated into 60 languages. His book, Brand Sense, was critically acclaimed by the Wall Street Journal as one of the five best marketing books ever published. Small Data was praised as revolutionary, and Time Magazine wrote this about biology, a breakthrough in branding. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast on the future of brands with one of Time Magazine's world's 100 most influential people, Martin Lindstrom. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Any idea what confusing vision and direction, culture inhibiting innovation, resistance to change, misaligned initiatives, audiences unable to understand, or unclear on the organization's purpose all have in common? There are barriers in linking ideation to implementation. Said another way, they're the gap between strategy formulation and execution. That's why for global brands such as KPMG, Tupperware, Oceaneering, Humana, ThyssenKrupp Elevator, and Hilton, to name a few, we've implemented strategy visualization. This is also the topic of the courses I teach at the Gozueta Business School at Emory University and the Owen Graduate School of Management at Vanderbilt University. We make any strategic initiative and the path to get there simple to understand, easy to internalize, and fast to act on. Let our team help you clarify, communicate, and cascade your journey from now to next. Learn more at norgroup.com slash strategy dash visualization. Welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Today, my guest uh, is someone who uh, very quickly is becoming a, a dear friend. He, he is always kind. He is always uh, is a gentleman. And, and, uh, and you know, this uh, seemingly uh, subdued 
person is a giant within. Uh, when you hear about his background, uh, I think you can't help but to just be in awe of what this guy's accomplished. I want to welcome Martin Lindstrom to the Curvebenders podcast. Hello, Martin. Hello, how are you doing? And listen, uh, I've never been called a gentleman before, so you already made my day. Thank you. You're always delightful to be around. We <laughs> met at the Thinkers 50 dinner uh, back in 2017. Uh, serendipitously, we sat next to each other. Exactly. And and you were not only kind, but you've been great to get to know through the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 community. Martin, for those who may not know as much about you, your work, talk a little about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here. Wow. Well, this is a crazy story. Do you know what? My work began when I was 11 years old. I was a huge fan of Lego. So I decided to build my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. Uh, the only problem was the day I opened this Legoland about a year into to, uh, to the works, then uh, only two people showed up my mom and my dad, which really was the lowest point of my career. So what I did was I, I teamed up with, and God knows how I did it, but teamed up with a local office, print office, and they placed an ad in the paper. And guess what? Two days later, I had 131 visitors showing up in my Legoland. There was just one problem. A visitor in 130 and visitor in 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. And that they said it's our brand, and I said no, it's my brand. I bought all the boxes. Um, anyway, they were pretty kind, uh, in particular because the owner of Lego heard about this story. He traveled to the little city where I was born and raised, and had my Legoland, and offered me a job at Lego. So I was the youngest kid in history of Lego getting a job as an eleven-year-old kid, and and uh, worked in the R and D department. And since then, really, my path has been to focus on. On exactly that, I learned um, because what I learned was really two things. I learned the power of brands and I actually opened up my own advertising agency when I was 12 years of age, got Lego as a client and had an amazing ride with them for until today for that sake. Um, the second thing I learned about the importance of placing the customer in the center of everything you do, which is exactly what Lego did with me back then. And that's really today translated into the job we do today for all the Fortune 100 brands across the world, whether that is to to change the uh, a big company uh, like Maersk, the shipping company, or Lowe's, or Google, or whatever, to, um, to work with uh, countries, to reposition countries, religions, royal families. It's a really big phenomenon where in the end of the day, what it comes down to is to truly understand the customers or the consumers or the population and then uh, craft a brand around it and then make the culture bind to it so they live it through every touch point. So Martin is incredibly humble. Uh, as you may have heard in the uh, introduction and the teaser for this podcast, Time Magazine has called him one of the most uh, world's 100 most influential people. Martin, seven New York Times bestsellers translated in 60 languages? I, I guess, uh, no, my mom and dad bought a lot of books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sadly, they both passed away now. So I'm really nervous when I'm going to publish the next book, if it will succeed or not, to get on the list. But do you know what? I, I've been very blessed uh, with all this stuff. Um 
what I try to do, David, is really to reinvent myself every time, yet to have one foot in one camp at the same time as I reinvent the other foot, so to speak. So through the years, you know, I coined a couple of terms which you may have heard about. One of them is neuromarketing, the idea of using neuroscience in order to understand how we behave. And I wrote a book called Biology, B-U-Y. Uh, biology, but also worked on another book where we used the five senses and looked into how they influence us. Um, I wrote a book called Small Data, which is really the opposite to big data, and and how those two things have to play together. So I really tried to reinvent myself, and and it's both made my life incredibly enjoyable because I have kept myself fresh in my brain, so to speak, but also have given me a good reason to write a lot. So at least I um, no, I could keep my brand alive, person brand, right? Um, I've read biology. I've read brand sense. Was there one that you – was there a favorite? I mean, I know it's asking like, what, you know, it's like, what's your yeah. favorite chi- child? But is there one that really spoke to you and you really felt like you had a, a bigger impact in the market? No, uh, I would say because, because – uh, you, you, you combined your question in two questions. One is one I was proud of and one which had an impact. And funny enough, they, these two things do not correlate for some reason, right? So uh, the one which sold the best was probably biology. I think it sold more than 2 million copies around the world. But um, but that did not necessarily resonate with me as deep as, as the, the book Small Data, which really in many ways reflect my true life. So I have a very strange life uh, no, I fly 300 days a year, which is really sad when you think about it. Um, but I also live in strangers' homes. I move into strangers' homes and spend time with them. So over the last 15 years, I spent time in more than 3,000 people's homes across close to 100 countries. Um, and I do that in order to understand cultures and understand what's going on and what's happening next. And very few people have done what I do, I guess, because it's pretty odd and very inconvenient to move around that much. But um, it also is very close to me because that book, Small Data, gives you, an, I think, an extraordinary insight into cultures around the world, whether that is in Saudi Arabia, where we worked a lot on making women drive, and where we talk about how the whole transformation of that country has reflected itself through every touch point, or me being kidnapped in Venezuela, or for that sake, me helping a, a country to be rebranded and reposition itself. So, I love that book because it's very true to who I am. Biology probably had the biggest impact on the world because that book, among others, was the reason why the health warnings on cigarette packs kind of disappeared in most of the world. And it's the reason why I would claim people smoke less today because the insight we learned from our neuroscience study really helped us redesign how we make people smoke less, not more, through uh, communication. And that insight was never really discovered before that book was written. And it had a, a profound impact, but my heart is closer to understanding people at an even deeper level, like living with them. Every time we talk, I, I learn, I pick up some new interesting nugget about you. So we're, we're at, uh, over a, probably a drink, we're going to have to talk about <laughs> how you find these homes. How do you <laughs> stay with strangers? But yeah. you also recently told me 
uh, was it a couple of years ago you decided that you were never gonna you're not gonna use a cell phone exactly yeah it's actually two years and 32 days ago it happened um do, do you know why i feel so uh, it's a long-winded story but 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 let me just give you a, a short cut of it I, I think the biggest danger we have on planet earth right now at least for human mankind is transparency and that sounds pretty odd when i tell you i'm sure but transparency means that we certainly have been able to through social media and the net to compare ourselves with everyone else. Uh, certainly a Chinese family, which actually was really happy in the past, are able to see, well, I, I only have one television, but in the United States on housewives, they have 1.9 televisions per person. And certainly we compare ourselves. I can see how popular you are and I'm not as popular uh, and all that stuff. And the reason why this is bad is because the suicide uh, degree is going up across the world. It's gone up thirty, sorry, seventy-four percent in the United States among teens, and almost an equal number in Europe. And this is happening because people get increasingly insecure or they lose their self-esteem because we feel we're just one out of seven point five billion people, which is true, but we really didn't discover that as much as we do today. So what I decided to do was really to be rebellious against this. And at, at some point, I said this in, in office and off so i skipped my phone there's really three reasons why the first thing is i noticed that we we don't see things anymore as we walk around on the street with a smartphone in front of us we do see the world through a a computer we don't see it through our own own eyes so we don't pick up on these details and these details is really no no, incredibly important for us to learn from because that can define who we are and but also help us to generate ideas the second thing which is even worse is we don't meet people anymore. Now, when the internet uh, was invented in 94 and later on with social media happened in the early 2000s, I, I sort of introduced the term of anti-social media because it is not social, it's anti-social and because we isolate ourselves more. We don't see the neighbors anymore. We don't see kids playing on the street anymore. And the worst thing is you come to a bar, you're waiting for someone and the person is late. What's the first thing you do? You grab your phone and you do something with it, anything with it, so you don't look like a complete loser. And as a consequence of that, what happens is that we don't meet people anymore because we become increasingly insecure. But the third thing is really the worst thing. The third thing is that we never get bored anymore. And in my mind, boredom is the foundation for creativity. It is that pause in our life where we defragment information and put them into the right space. It's almost like how we dream. If we don't dream, we will have a problem. And that means we're not creative anymore. We are constantly trying to make a catch up to our to-do list. Um, so I decided to skip the phone because of transparency and because of those three reasons. And it's been absolutely amazing. And I can tell you already now, David, uh, this was a one-year project and um, I decided never to get a phone again. I'll never have a phone again for sure. And you don't you don't miss it. You don't miss no. people getting in touch with you or, or what, what happens in case of an emergency? Well, it, give me an example of an emergency where I need a phone. You're stranded, you know, something, car breaks down. You're stranded in the middle of a highway. Well, first of all, if, if I don't drive, so that wouldn't happen. And if my driver would, uh, you know, his car would break down, he would have a phone. Are you ever late and do you need to get in touch with someone? Well, that's that another that issue. This is so funny you're saying it. Yes, I was late. The entire world is seven minutes late. I'll be there soon. Sorry. <laughs> right? Uh, but, but so I had to learn to get on time. I was actually having a meeting in Atlanta 
with with uh, Best Buy, and I was late. It was just after I skipped my phone. And I got so stressed and I had to attack the taxi driver and borrow his phone and pay him $50 for it, right? Um, but, but the reality is I learned to be on time. We have learned ourselves not to be on time. That's the reason why people showing up to air, you know, to airplanes uh, you know, is a huge problem now. The airline industry actually has noticed a double-digit decrease in people not showing up on time anymore. Because we're always in the last minute, because everyone is in the last minute. So um, there is no, ex- you can't give me a single example where I desperately need a phone because here's the issue. Everyone else around me have a phone, right? So I can just yeah. use that if I want to. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, again, Martin, always fascinating. <laughs> so, so you've done, you know, for years, you've been a student of brands and, uh, really, organizations, and I love it more recently, religions and countries, and uh, and as you said, royal families. Uh, can you comment on the top two, three challenges you continue to see these large enterprises make in terms of their brand, in terms of that customer centricity that you spoke about? Well, first of all, the concept of brands have evolved and perhaps even rebranding is needed for brands because brands today is seen increasingly as being a logo mark with some graphics around. And I've always said from the very beginning, a brand is really every touch point a consumer comes in contact with over the entire span of a company's life. And that means that suddenly I'm also talking about customer experience, uh, customer service, culture. All that stuff is suddenly becoming one big thing. Now, the overarching umbrella happens to be the brand, if the brand also have a purpose, and that's written down. Um, But the reality is that the biggest challenge I have today is not that whole visual identity because we do less and less of that uh, in our in our company but what we do more is to understand the culture so when we transform organizations which we do a lot typically organizations which are stocked in the past um, always are suffering from compliance or regulations or incredible convoluted bureaucracy and they just can't get out of their own way then what we do is that we look into the culture and reinvigorate the culture around a common purpose where people become so proud of it that they actually start to live it and as they start to live this brand the brand indirectly is suddenly being lived through the interaction of its its staff. And so the biggest challenges we have today is that um, people have no time. And we feel increasingly busy. Uh, I'm sure, David, if you and I were to talk off the record, you will tell me that you are super busy uh, and you've never been as busy before. What's really fascinating, however, is, and I'm writing about that in my next book, is that we actually – uh, are not more busy than we were a decade ago. We're actually less busy. Um, we actually were part of doing a study where we asked people to use or to avoid using the word busy or I'm so busy or, or I have too much to do. Just avoid that whole reference uh, for a year. And guess what? Those people who were part of the experiment 
actually ended up being less busy because it becomes a negative self-fulfilling prophecy to do that. And technology, by the way, has increased our business with 17% over the last decade because technology really doesn't work anymore. We have problems in meeting rooms, setting them up, you know, technical issues, compliance, server issues, uh, the f- charting the phone, you name it. And I'm sure you can give me hundreds of different issues which are killing you time every day and generating a lot of frustrations and a lot of stress. So the biggest issue we have in organizations when we transform it is to get people's time out of it. Because when you have to do a transformation from an old school to a new school company, you also need to put an extra effort into it. And we know from our work that we typically need to give a people an additional workload of 40% when they have to transform an organization through a short period. And those 40% is really tricky to squeeze out of people's minds because they're so busy already, right? So that is our biggest challenge. Now we succeed and we succeed by using a technique which I call 90-day interventions. And that's where we find small nuggets of changes through concept innovation, which have two purposes. One is they save the organization money. And the second thing is to actually give people more time. And through that, we free up the organization and then we can make the change happen once we have some extra space. So this is really the first challenge. The second challenge, in my opinion, is that people's attention span is non-existing today. And that means if you want to establish a new company, a new brand, or reposition a country, just to get the attention to be, you know, of people is very hard because people's filter is so thick today that they don't even want to listen to you. It's not because they don't like you. They just don't have the attention anymore. The attention span is gone. And I'm sure you tried it when you watched one of your favorite movies from the good old days again. And you think, oh, my God, it's slow. Well, that's because our attention span has changed a lot. So these are the two, you know, if I should drill it into the essence, that's the two challenges I really have. You talk a lot about transformation, and that's the transformation business you're in. Can you talk about some positive trends? So those organizations that are able to transform, Martin, they not just hear you, but they internalize it. They make up that 40% additional capacity to transform what are some of the things that they're doing exceptionally well yeah well i'll give you three quick examples one is from lowe's lowe's foods is a supermarket chain in the u.s not to be mixed up with lowe's and the mid-sized supermarket chain based in north carolina and they were near not bankruptcy but close to bankruptcy about six years ago and they reached out to us and said hey we want to change our brand um, can can you guys help us? What they had in mind was we would change literally the logo, increase the number of products on the shelf, and lower the prices. We ended up by increasing the prices on the shelf, uh, have fewer products, and we never really changed the logo. Uh, so talk about you know, not completing the assignment for your client here. But what, what, what we did was kind of unusual. We took the people from the organization into homes of consumers. Literally, we took the store managers from across the country into homes of consumers and had them see firsthand what reality was all about. And they were shocked when they saw it. And based on that, we learned that the future of supermarkets is not what one thinks. It's going to be an entertainment place. And we then created basically what we call food entertainment. And today, Lowe's is like a, a Disneyland. You walk into it and you can design your own food. You have people literally dancing in the supermarket. You have uh, a nightclubs in the supermarket at 11 p.m. with a bar, DJ station, live bands. 
and people are hanging around just next to the yogurt and the milk on the shelf, you'll have a a, a, a person walking around. You can order your food with that person, and the person will go out and pick it up, put it into the shopping cart for you, paid for you with your credit card, and you will just have everything packed up and ready to go as you go home. This is the future of supermarkets. And what is fascinating is that we learned three things from this exercise. The first thing I learned was that this company was incredibly um, secretive in the past. And they were secretive because they were so afraid of people would steal their ideas. We learned the more you communicate about a transformation to the world, the more you attract talent and sponsors. So it really had the opposite effect. Second, we learned that this is all to do with culture. So what we did was we created two schools with a capacity of 10,000 people, which we are training in hospitality. We employ actors working in a supermarket. And then once we have the actors which are good, we employ them and we train them to become butchers. So completely reverse of what we would do. And the third thing we did uh, was that we teamed up with the local community and we created more than 600 sub brands under Lowe's. So, for example, we teamed up with a local potato grower and we had a sub brand with a grower, which is both Lowe's and the local potato grower and created these amazing sub brands. So people are going into the supermarket and they feel this is truly uh, local. And that had a profound impact. I mean, Lowe's uh, basically increased their revenue with 250%. Uh, so we talk about a huge thing in just three years because of this whole uh, exercise. So what we learned out of this is, is culture. If I take companies like Maersk, this, the largest shipping company in the world, 21% of all trade in the world, I learned exactly the same, culture. And the problem is people are so engraved into a default mindset that they don't want to change. And they don't want to change because they're afraid of the unknown. So what we do, and this is another learning, we co-create with the brands, with the consumers, with the uh, companies and the culture. So it becomes their idea. But we always refer back to the consumer or the customer as the jury. It's not the CEO. It's the consumer was evaluating things. And that leads me to a third brand, which is Burger King. You know, fascinating with Burger King. We actually found two young kids when I interviewed them in the home. And I realized through these kids, they knew more about branding and marketing than Burger King did. So what did we do? We employed them. We brought them in and these kids, 17 years of age, had the entire marketing plan in their heads and they became a guiding light internally, just as me when I was 11 years old working at Lego. Martin, this is fascinating. So is that where you see future of brands headed? Is more of that entertainment, more engagement, more? Because I would submit that fewer and fewer brands are actually controlled by the companies anymore. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So what, what do you think it's headed? Well, first of all, I think the concept of brands is dead. Um, I don't think we will see the global brands as we know them today. Of course, the Apples and the Googles uh, will be around, but you would have noticed that there are so many micro brands appearing everywhere. So the conventional format of brands is dead. What you will see is it's co-created brands where the consumer have a and ownership of the brand. And I think the best example of that would be if you go to Japan, where if you take one of the largest franchise there, a Nintendo brand, and some of the characters in the in, in the game, you'll notice that these characters are no longer owned by Nintendo. The, the, the 
write to those characters has been given free of charge to all their fans. And the fans are then basically iterating those characters. They're giving them personalities. They even call themselves by the name of those characters and suddenly have people in the millions creating their own merchandising line. Can you believe it? They don't have to pay royalty back to the company. They're just doing it because they love these characters so much. That's what we call a movement. And that means that suddenly it's not a brand. It's more than that. It's one of the topics I'm exploring in one of my previous books where I see a huge parallel between religion and brands because the same construct quite often is represented by brands which are really powerful, like Harley-Davidson, like Apple, uh, like Hello Kitty, that type of brands. So I do see the co-creation with consumers is going to be even stronger. Uh, brands are going to be much more local, which is part of the co-creation. And brands also are going to change direction constantly, yet they're all need to have one thing in common. They all need to have an overarching purpose. They have to give back. And I've seen this uh, in a major way over the last two years when we interview consumers across the world in their homes. They're all increasingly saying to us, particularly the young generation, I don't want to support that brand unless they support human mankind. If they don't do it, I'm out of here. And they're not just saying it as our generation did. They really mean it. So as you and I talked about, Curvebenders is this this nexus of future of work and strategic relationships and relationships that come into your life that dramatically change your direction and destination. Beyond coaches, beyond mentors, Martin, can you talk about maybe two, three Curvebenders that have dramatically changed your journey? I think a couple of things. The first Curvebender for me probably is in plural because that's probably the consumer. Um, I have seen so many things in so many odd situations that I've come to realize that the truth you'll get from the people out there, you will get it from your customers, potential customers, and people which are just living ordinary lives. So in, in contrast to basically any other answer you typically would get to your question. I do believe that we have disconnected ourselves in the corporate world from the real people. And I would like that connection to be stronger by people spending more time in the homes of consumers to see what's going on there. And then you will pick up small insight, which really can be profound in terms of changing an entire industry and business. So that would be the first curve for me. The second uh, Carpenter for me would would probably be uh, people in organizations which are willing to fight. And I'll give you one example of a Carpenter which I met and which I admire in, uh, profoundly. It's it's a bank which you probably haven't heard about. It's still one of the largest in the world. It's called Standard Chartered Bank. They are very large in Middle East and Asia, and but also partly in the UK and Northern Europe. And so they are a bank around eighty eight thousand staff, and they had a lot of bureaucracy and politics internally, as any bank have because of compliance. But there was one lady in there, her name was Gail. And Gail one day said to me, hey, Martin, I'm sick and tired of all the bureaucracy. I'm so tired of compliance. It's destroying me and this brand, this bank, and I really want to change it. And I said to, to, to Gail, so what's your thinking? And she said to me, hey, why don't we create the Ministry of Common Sense? And I said, what, what an amazing idea. So Gail literally started up the Ministry of Common Sense, an internal department 
in the bank, which over a year collected more than 1,000 stupidities or lacks of common sense, and through a washing machine basically got rid of them or fine-tuned them in a way where people's you know, emotional stretch jacket, so to speak, kind of disappeared and people could breathe again. Now, I don't need to tell you, this you know, touches the nerve of almost every company in the world, but it happened with Gail, and that for me was a, a curve bender. And interestingly enough, that's the title of your new book. It is, yeah, because I, I as you know, I, I have to sell at least sell two books more for my mom and dad, right? Uh, so, <laughs> no, listen, yeah, it became the title of of my next book because uh, I, I feel we are we've gotten to a place in our world today where common sense has disappeared. I mean, uh, I was going through TSA the other day and, and it, there was a big sign saying, and God bless them, it said seven, people which are 75 years uh, old or, or older, uh, they actually um, <laughs> they don't need to go through screening processes. So I went up to the guy from TSA and I said to him, say, hey, uh, I didn't know this, but is it true that if you're a terrorist, you officially retire when you're 75 years of age? He didn't think that was particularly <laughs> funny. But uh, but I no, listen, we got to a world which is crazy. I was in the airport the other day and I had to buy a pair of headsets. And and uh, it was bubble-wrapped in this double plastic. And, and after you know, 20 minutes with help from all fellow uh, passengers on the plane, we literally gave up. All our fingers were destroyed, and this plastic wrap was still intact with the headset shining inside it, right? Uh, it's happening everywhere in our life where common sense is disappearing. You know, the other day, there was a, one of my clients. They have a new rule which tells you that if you have a sick leave, if you, if you have a cold or whatever, you have to call HR two days before it happens. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So this is this common sense is disappearing, and it's disappearing for multiple reasons. Technology certainly is one of them. Um, I mean, how often haven't you tried being frustrated about technology or long waiting lines in the call center, whatever it is? So the the book Minister of Common Sense is all about getting rid of this, and how do you do that in a smart way? And the technique is very simple. You actually can do that by both saving money and optimizing um, the culture by just doing it, approaching it in a completely different way. And that's what I call the Minister of Common Sense. It's basically a way to clean up your, your company from all that mess, holding you back from innovating. I can't wait. And I think it's being published in June. Is that That the, is uh... right, yeah. And I had to tell you in return, it is published in June indeed. Curbbenders is you know, the other book I'm looking forward to. Tell me more about that. Very kind. Yeah, it's, it's again, at the nexus of this idea of, uh, I, I believe, in the next two decades, we've identified 15 forces that are going to dramatically change the way we live, work, yeah. play, and give. And, and Martin, the premise is, for any of us to remain relevant, we have to continue to learn and be curious and grow personally and professionally. Yeah. And, and I want to build on that. Sorry for interrupting you, David. I so think you're so right on it. And I want to just add my little you know, thought on it. I think we have, all of us have three bank accounts in our lives. We have the first one, which is where we get our money. We have the second one where we build our brand and educate ourselves. Um, and, and we have the third one uh, where we give 
And I think the second bank account is completely forgotten. When was the last time where you actually were sitting on the school bench and just learning? If you ask that question to most people, most people will say, I really want to, but I don't have the time. And then ask them, how much did you evolve your own brand? How many money are you sitting aside to build your personal brand? Because that is sustainable. You know, to, to just focus on the company you're working on is great, but it's doesn't necessarily have a safety net. So I think you're spot on on what you're saying. Yeah, and 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 you're exactly right. Is and you 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 hate to say it, but you see uh, people really recognize the value of their brand or lack there of it when they have to change jobs, yeah. either by choice or they get laid off yeah. or the, the executive ranks change. And suddenly the people that were trying to sell you something are no longer returning your calls and emails yeah. because you're no longer in that position of power. Exactly. And, exactly. and you no longer are carrying that business card that had your company logo on it. Exactly. And your name being your biggest brand had been all but forgotten, yeah. right? So yeah. curve benders, again, on this, for most of us, that learning is, is a, a linear curve. And, and my premise is certain relationships, that's kind of my wheelhouse, come yeah. into our lives that, again, dramatically change both the direction and destination of that curve yeah. and allow us to learn faster at an accelerated pace, learn very different types of knowledge that becomes intellectual food. You never know where or how you're going to use it, but you're going to use it. And I love that you combine brand with education because it's exactly right. That education is something that nobody can ever take away from you. And it does nothing but enhance your personal brand. Absolutely. So uh, I have to say that book is, is, in my opinion, a must read. And, and it's a must read because I think we have loosened sight of where we are today i think we're so busy because we are only driving in the survival lane to today and i'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will recognize the fact that you quite often are saying to yourself hey i have this exhaustive to-do list on my pc or whatever i have at work and once i've done that then I, I only solved the, the problems of yesterday. Then I have to do the problems of today. And how much time do you then have of the vision of the future where you not only are thinking about where do you want to take the company, but also where do you take yourself? And the last question, I don't think a lot of people are thinking about. They all say to themselves they want to do it, but very few people I've met can really roll out this, this roadmap. Martin, you've been amazing to speak with as always. I told you, every conversation is a breath of fresh air. Every discussion, uh, and I'm telling you, uh, uh, one of our common friends, San Yen Singh from Duke says, you know, we all have superpowers. I'm telling you, one of yours is to make people think. <laughs> Thank and, you. And really, and really think uh, more strategically, more intentionally. Um, so for those who want to get in touch or learn more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to find you? Well, listen, just check out uh, Martin Lindstrom, M-A-R-T-I-N-L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M.com. That's my website. Oh, and of course, I will direct into Lindstrom Comedy as well, which is our group. But you can also follow me on basically everywhere, Lindstrom Company, on LinkedIn, or you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff where I'm sharing information every day from my observations as I travel the world and seeing odd, stupid, crazy, or just amazing ideas. I can't wait to read the Ministry of Common Sense. And I love the subtitle, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate 
beep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that, that is just so prevalent all around us. It is. <laughs> so Martin, thank you. Thanks for being a guest on the Curvebenders podcast. And I cannot wait to see you again, my friend. Likewise. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book. This will be book number 11 for me with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, phenomenal interviews. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the first 500 participants. So go to norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com. The very bottom of the page, there's a get in touch section and simply enter Curve Benders Insights. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast with my friend Martin Lindstrom. Interestingly enough, we recorded this episode in the very early stages of the current COVID-19 global pandemic, and yet his insights on the evolution of brands and how organizations desperately need to reinvent themselves couldn't have been more insightful. I'm still taken back by his dispensing with having a cell phone. What an incredible commitment to being in the moment and not being distracted with these things that seem to be attached to our hips. I'm excited to read his new book, Ministry of Common Sense, and I hope you'll pick up a copy as well. Join me on the next episode of the Curvebenders podcast as I interview Rita McGrath, the distinguished Columbia Business School professor and author of Seeing Around Corners. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from past podcasts into more in-depth articles, including links to multiple resources on the topic. So check them out on our website at norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Music.